Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Operation Climate. My name is Catherine, and I'll be guiding you throughout this episode. Fun fact, this episode was produced and reported by three of our wonderful Operation Climate High School interns, Chloe, Cameron, and Rowena. Intersectionality, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, talks about the interconnectedness of different identities and how the overlapping of them can create disadvantages in society. For example, a white woman can experience gender discrimination, but her experience is entirely different than that of a black woman's, who also experiences racial discrimination on top of gender discrimination. The same thing applies to the climate movement. Someone who is affluent has a much different experience navigating the climate crisis than someone who is of a lower socioeconomic status. BIPOC folks and those living in the global South experience environmental discrimination in ways that white people or those living in richer countries don't. When we acknowledge the different ways that people experience the climate crisis and work towards creating a radically inclusive and better future for all, that is called intersectional environmentalism. Intersectional environmentalism. The term was coined by Leah Thomas, a young environmental activist who you may also know as Green Girl Leah and the founder of the nonprofit organization Intersectional Environmentalist. She also happens to be our guest on today's episode of Operation Climate, and we are so excited to have her. My name is Leah Thomas, and I am an environmental communicator. I founded um, Intersectional Environmentalist, which is an environmental justice nonprofit in 2020 that's all about creating accessible educational resources that we share through social media and a magazine, a zine, and then also doing some consulting behind the scenes. In addition to that, I wrote a book on the same topic, The Intersectional Environmentalist, that came out this year. And for the last, wow, I guess five years, I've had my personal blog, Green Girl Leah, which just talks about sustainability in general and just kind of what I'm up to in my everyday life. The idea of intersectional environmentalism has become a lot more well-known, and this is largely due to social media and the internet. Here's Leah's journey in becoming an environmental educator for hundreds of thousands of people online through intersectional environmentalists, and how she's seen social media impact the climate movement. And I think to give further background, so I studied environmental science and policy when I was in college. And I wanted to work in environmental communications because I always really loved writing and I thought it was really important if people were going to become engaged environmentalists for this information to be really easy to understand because I was falling in love with the climate science and also, you know, my biology classes in ecosystems ecology. But then when I would come back home to St. Louis and talk to my family to be completely honest, I was very preachy when I was a college student, and so are many early environmental activists. And sometimes we speak in ways where we don't meet people where they're at or use accessible language. So I decided I wanted to go into environmental communications to hopefully get more people to care about different sustainability topics in an accessible way. 
So my first job after college was at eco-friendly soap company called Ecos. They make laundry detergent and things like that. And I was on their comms team. And then my second job was at Patagonia headquarters on their communications and PR team. And I think I learned a lot at Patagonia because they make clothes in a very sustainable way. And they also partner with a lot of grassroots environmental and environmental justice organizations. So I learned a lot, but I wanted it to go uh, even further. So outside of just consumer behavior and getting consumers to purchase sustainably, I wanted to see if I could help mobilize as many people as possible whether or not they identified as a climate activist to show people that everyone can be an environmentalist, especially when we're talking about diverse groups of people who don't always see themselves reflected in environmental media. So I kind of started with an experiment on Green Girl Leah, uh, my personal blog, just showcasing what I was up to. So or talking about my grandma Janice, who's like a 70 plus year old black woman, but is basically gardening organically in her backyard because she doesn't use pesticides. She loves surf shopping and she loves, you know, repurposing things. So showing people, look, Janice is an environmentalist, my grandma is an environmentalist. Contrary to popular belief, you don't have to summit a mountain or, you know, be a Nat Geo photographer in order to care for the earth. And that's so silly that the media has done that in these last, you know, couple decades. So with people kind of slowly embracing my personal blog and a lot of people saying things like, oh, I didn't even realize that, you know, my family is also very sustainable. I realized there was a really big need for that and social media was the perfect place to start. So when we decided to found Intersectional Environmentalist, it was all about kind of bringing environmental justice data from, of course, you know, academic institutions and government agencies, but breaking it down in a way where people could read it and say, I get it. And I think something with social media is that this is not, quote unquote, dumbing down information. I've had a lot of snobby academics say something about Gen Zers and younger millennials who use social media to talk about the issues they care about. They say things like, oh, this is going to lose academic integrity. But I like to fire back and say, well, what's the use of having all this information if like 90% of people on earth cannot understand it? And if you need a degree to understand this, the goal should be making sure as many people as possible understand the climate crisis, understand sustainability principles, so as many people as possible can care for this earth a little bit better and its people. So that's why, long story short, I really like using social media as an entry point for people for education because there's so many barriers. Sometimes people, you know, can't go to college for a lot of different reasons or they're working 60 hour work weeks. But I want people, regardless of where they're at, and even if they only have five minutes to spend on social media, to be able to walk away with something educational. So yeah, that's why I use digital media for communications because I wanna meet people where they're at. And the fact of the matter is, that's where the majority of Gen Z and millennials are, social media. Speaking of reaching Gen Z on social media, why is it important to reach and mobilize these younger audiences? I am like on the cusp. So I'm like in those years between like 97 and 90, 
94, where we're like baby millennials, elder Gen Zers. So I was not a part of the like high school climate strikes because I was already, I think, in college at that point or when middle schoolers were doing that. But then being like almost like an auntie, which feels funny for like the youth climate movement, I was like, the kids are stressed in a way that is unusual. And they're walking out of their classrooms. And I just am like, this is something something's going on. So I honestly was concerned because I was seeing high schoolers spend so much energy and have a certain level of fear that previous generations did not because of the state of the planet. So I think that led to a sense of urgency for me because I want people to still have their youth. That's really important. And I've met a lot of like prominent youth activists who don't know how to even acclimate into adulthood because their entire lives have not really been focused on their social lives. It's been focused on like activism and saving the planet. So I've tried to, honestly, I take this very seriously where I want people to experience joy. And that's why joy has become such a big part of the intersectional environmentalist platform um, to show people, especially the younger generation of people that you can be an activist, but you can also be a kid. You can also be like a youth. You can still go out with your friends in college and care about the planet. And I learned that because um, while the climate strikes weren't present when I was in high school, when I was in college, that's when the Black Lives Matter movement began. And it began in large part because of a tragedy that happened in my hometown um, in Ferguson. And I remember almost flunking out of college, even as like a high achieving student, and just really being depressed because of the state of the world. And because I let my activism completely consume me. And it wasn't until later that I realized like I need to nourish myself. I need to be around my friends, have these extra hobbies. I can care, but I'm going to burn out if I don't also experience joy. So I think learning from my own lessons and then seeing an even more serious trend where a lot of Gen Zers have eco-anxiety, increased levels of anxiety and depression, it really made me just want to give Gen Zers like a hug and show them more healthy ways to participate in activism. Because I don't think even the climate strikes necessarily have promoted the healthiest of generation of climate activists. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot of stories because a lot of these youth climate activists are now 18, 19, 20, 21, and they're figuring out what it means to be an adult and lots of learning lessons from what it looks like to completely dedicate your youth to activism. So I think I'm just like a concerned auntie and I want to make sure that the youth can be the youth. And I also, um, on the other end, was finding that a lot of schools are not teaching what Gen Zers actually want to learn. And they're going to social media as a starting place to learn about intersectional issues that aren't covered in their programs. So like things like ecofeminism, 
I think it's so cool and I think most people should know about it, but it's kind of a niche topic. So I want to show people, okay, here's ecofeminism, here's queer ecology, here's, you know, indigenous land stewardship practices that aren't being featured in their curriculum so they can have a more like robust understanding of environmentalism. So yeah, I want people to have the education they want as young as possible because if they know those things early on, it can just do wonders for their career later on. If they know, oh, I am reflected in environmental history, they might not feel so alone in the environmental space. A problem that we see a lot with people on social media is that people will get very energized about a social issue that they read about on social media, but then very quickly get overwhelmed and burnt out by the fast news cycles and sense of doom about the world. And we talk more about this on our episode with Elson Bankoff about proactive media, so go check out that episode. But how do we use social media in a way that mitigates this phone burnout and helps people translate their digital activism to real life? It can be really stressful and overwhelming. And I would say that social media can be the end goal for some people to participate. Like there are some people where they're like, this is what I do. I make graphics. I am really good at this. So this is how I'm going to be an activist. But that's not everybody. And it's not going to be fulfilling for everyone, probably the majority of people. So I would say figuring out like what your special skill is and putting it to the movements that you care about. And I say that just knowing that everything can be used for a movement. Like even if you are just really good at baking, like coming to meetings with baked goods and food is going to nourish the movement. If you are really great at like, I don't know, accounting or even just making spreadsheets and things like that, that's a skill set that many people do not possess and you can like lend that skill. So finding things that maybe you didn't even think of and trying to apply that to the grassroots movements you really care about because movements need everybody. And there's a website, it's called Catch a Fire. So catch a fire and a bunch of nonprofits and local organizing groups post. They might say, we need help with a new logo or we need someone to edit this thing or, you know, whatever, like a really small task. I would recommend people go to that website. It's a great place to start to take your digital action into the real world and know that you're helping. And then also like get off social media when you can. Try to have limits to how often you're on there. Um, a lot of people doom scroll. And I think another thing is like TikTok. Um, it's so hard to get off of it. Like it'll really trap you in there. So just making sure you set certain limits because even lately on TikTok, I've realized like I'm not always walking. Like I go to TikTok for humor. But even then, like all of a sudden there's all this like mental health advice or like relationship advice or like life advice. And I don't think it's actually that great because it's like these are random unqualified people who don't know you who are giving you advice. So I'm seeing a lot of people walking away from TikTok feeling like sad and confused and just like, oh, my boyfriend didn't do this or um, I don't look. And it's just like, just get off of it. So set limits. And I swear you'll probably feel a little better. Starting from a blog 
Over Leah's environmentalism career, she's been an avid writer, contributing to publications like the Washington Post, Vogue, and more. So we were wondering, how has creating and publishing these creative essays and op-eds about climate justice empowered her as an environmentalist, and how does she hope it empowers others? Here's what she had to say. Yeah, I really love to just show up wherever with environmental justice, even though there are people, like I said, it's usually like, snobs who might say like well why are you writing about climate justice in like Vogue or I did one article for like Playboy or something like that which was a lot of fun because also Martin Luther King Jr. also wrote for Playboy but anyway so (laughs) or like Elle or Marie Claire Teen Vogue like I think again it really boils down to my principle of like meet people where they're at if the goal is to get outside of just the climate community. And the truth of the matter is most people are not in the climate community all over the world. They're just living lives in different communities. Then I think writing in these publications is important. But I would say it took a really long time to get there. I started submitting pieces online probably my sophomore year in college. And a lot of it was like, they weren't these big platforms or anything like that. And to be completely honest, I think that social media and the growth of my platform, like just sharing my writing for five years, even in short little snippets on Instagram, like carousel posts, is what helped me get to write for those platforms. So I did what I could until I could pitch to some of those platforms. But I just want to to let people know it took like five years or so before I was even like paid for an article. But yeah, I've really enjoyed the pieces that I've written for them. But I do hope that I can kind of diversify what I talk about. I think in the last two years, there's a really strong interest in just understanding um, how intersectionality connected to environmentalism or just a lot of people didn't even know what environmental justice meant. So a lot of my writing was very introductory and kind of talking about really similar themes. But now that I think the general understanding gap of what intersectional environmentalism is, I'll probably write about different topics as well. One of the shortcomings of social media is the rampant misinformation that spreads on these platforms. How do we navigate misinformation on social media and consume media in smart ways? Additionally, these social media platforms also have the power to combat disinformation and misinformation. Here are Leah's thoughts. I worked with Pinterest last year. They're the first major social media platform, which is pretty surprising to me, that made a climate misinformation and disinformation policy. So they will take it off. They'll remove it. They'll flag it. If people are posting things like the planet is fine and, you know, climate change isn't real, like it will be removed. Similar to how Instagram And Meta decided to add disclaimers for anything that's COVID related. It would literally auto post and say, like, go to the FDA, like website or whatever it was, go to this website. And I know a lot of people were annoyed by that at first, but I think it's so important for social media platforms to just be like, we cannot fact check hundreds of thousands of posts. So we might as well put something on this. And I honestly think it would be great if that could happen for like social media content as well. 
I would be okay with that. Even on Instagram, like if we're sharing climate science for there to be something, so someone could go to a link that's like, here's why climate change is real because it's really important. And I think TikTok, I think that's something I want to explore and maybe write about. I think it's actually spreading misinformation and disinformation more than other social media platforms in a way that like Facebook misinformation and like boomers go hand in hand. I think Gen Z and TikTok misinformation go hand in hand because I've seen TikTok radicalize people and like odd ways, like uh, self-diagnosing themselves because people are talking about various like disorders and things like that. I've seen like relationship advice that might be like a little toxic or something like that. And then I've also, I haven't really seen as much climate misinformation, but I'm sure it's out there and I'm sure that it's not really being regulated. It's just not popping up on my algorithm because they know better because they know that I love the earth. But yeah, I, I do want to call on TikTok to figure that out because I don't think that it's healthy, especially for Gen Z. Another problem that we see with social movements on social media is that often energy around it is not sustainable, largely because of how fast news cycles are and how quickly people move their attention. With something as long-term facing as climate change, how do we use social media and other forms of media to sustain energy around the movement? Even right now, I'm seeing like a decline in anti-racism type movements or even climate movements. And I think it's because we're overwhelmed. Like it makes sense. There's a pandemic, there's all this stuff going on and there has like, you, you can't sustain that amount of energy for so long. So I think that's why there's been a subtle shift to, and some movements to focus on climate optimism and like solutions for the future. Um, because I think that that can be the cure to the problem. Like if there's a joyful movement, And it's not, it's just like consistently like fueled by hope. I think people can drop in at any moment they want and they're like, oh yeah, there's hope for the future. But if it's doom and gloom, there's going to be a plateau because people are going to get depressed. If you're not, you know, fueling, nourishing people and giving them hope for the possibilities of the future, I think it's just going to decline. But we're seeing a lot of environmental orgs shift their focus to like climate joy, climate optimism things like that. And I think that will definitely help because people never get tired of hearing joyful stories, especially in the world that we live in, where every headline is like horrible. I think that's a way where movements can sustain themselves a little bit better is by maybe being more inviting and also offering people solutions to the problems that they propose. Let's summarize this episode. The idea of intersectionality in the climate movement has become a lot more widespread and known, largely due to media resources, like social media. Social media can act as a pathway for increasing accessibility to the environmental movement and can be a valuable tool for social movements. The power of social media in forwarding social movements is limited, though, and there are some problems that we have to overcome. And as always, we have some action items for you to take once you finish listening to this episode. One, check out Intersectional Environmentalist and their resources and events, including Leah's book called The Intersectional Environmentalist, to learn more about what intersectional environmentalism means. And two, examine the media that you consume very critically. 
For example, the next time you come across an informational TikTok video, ask the questions, who's making this video? What is their background? Are their points supported by evidence, etc.? Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Operation Climate. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you can stay updated about future episodes. For a full transcript of this episode, head to our website at bit.ly slash operationclimatepodcast. To stay updated about other Operation Climate things, follow us on our socials. We are at Operation Climate on Instagram and TikTok. And also subscribe to our newsletter. The link will be in our show notes. And we hope you join us next time. Bye.